I have just been very, very extremely blessed by this book. And I, I'm coming to the conclusion that when I bought it, I must not have read it. Because I'm coming across these things and I'm realizing that I'm, they're hitting me for the first time. I have had a strange couple of weeks. When Jay prayed on Sunday morning, and, and several of you were here, as he was still sitting at the piano and the worship time was over, and he started talking about diminished hope. And I understood very well what he was talking about because our minds and our hearts get very attached to how we see a future looking, what's fixing to happen. And we can begin to imagine, we can begin to see, and our minds and our hearts can begin to build. And we can get very excited about what is in our future that we can actually recognize. God's spoken. But circumstances and situations, time, relationships, people, all kinds of things can affect this. And you wake up one day and you realize that the expectations that I had, the thoughts that I had that kind of brought this hope, seemed to be fading. It was quite a wrestling match and, and has been over a couple of weeks. God has brought reassurance in several ways, brought promises that he's made, but we have, for the last eight and a half years, you know, we don't have a budget. We don't send y'all notes out saying this is our budget, we're reaching it or we're not reaching it. We don't do any of that. We don't count how many people are saved. We don't post attendance and how many people are at Sunday school because I don't care. And I don't mean that to be rude, but I don't care. I don't care how much money comes in according to a budget. I don't care how many people are in Sunday school. I don't care those details that we can report by number. The number one thing that, you know, we use here as the only measure, because when I watch and look through the New Testament, there was only one measure that ever mattered. And that measure was very simple. How many lives and how dynamically are lives being changed? That's it. Everywhere Jesus went, lives were being dynamically changed. I read this book, and I'll share a little bit of this in, within this story tonight. It's the story of a guy named John Hyde. But you wonder, as we read about this, these moments in these revivals, when simply because someone's praying, people begin to just speak of the sin in their life because they can't bear it anymore. Because the conviction of the Holy Spirit has brought such a drastic reality over someone's life that they can't contain it anymore and they begin to speak and they begin to ask for forgiveness and you watch these revivals begin and this healing began and this transition of life began and we read this and I read it with excitement I read it knowing that it was true I read about his ministry with hundreds of thousands and even as a result in India of over a million people being saved out of this work that he originated in the area around Pakistan so many years ago, over a million people saved out of this work, this great transition of life and how hard it is today to get people to even believe that Jesus Christ can make a difference. He's the same. He hasn't changed. But to get people to even let hope begin to rise that what Jesus or God or the Holy Spirit can do in their story can drastically change it. And the chains that they were carrying can fall away. The burdens can go away. The weight of life can fall off of us. The sin that we carry that causes guilt and shame and blame 
broken relationships that have caused us to just stumble and stumble and stumble can actually be healed. Forgiveness can come. And lives can be drastically changed. I'm sitting with Albert Withrich. Some of you know him. He was the superintendent at uh, Ropes and then the superintendent at Whiteface. And a good friend of ours did a wedding for his son uh, on Saturday evening at First Baptist Church in Lubbock. And uh, Albert and uh, Jana are just good friends. Some of you will remember, it's been several years ago now, where he, when a young man named Blake Brazel was hurt I think in a four-wheeler accident, and I'm drastically hurt. Expected to be a vegetable for the rest of his life. And Elbert's second daughter, Cassie, was Blake's girlfriend. Cassie now is living in San Diego with her husband, and uh, she is uh, in medical school becoming a neurosurgeon. She was standing in Blake's room when the neurosurgeon in Lubbock told her, said, you need to separate yourself from this young man as fast as you can because if you don't, you're going to be changing diapers for the rest of your life and this is going to be the story that you're agreeing to. And it just broke her heart that he would even say it. Well, Elbert, we were at dinner and he was telling me this story and he said, he said I didn't know the father, Blake's father and mother very well outside of the fact that our kids knew each other. I didn't know him at all. And he said, I walked in to the room where the mom and dad were he said, he told him, I don't know you well enough to be able to tell you what I'm fixing to tell you. But I've got to tell you. We're just talking to the dad. And he said, if you don't forgive the people sitting in the lobby, your ex-wife, your ex-mother-in-law, if you don't forgive them, this young man's life is hanging in the balance. That's a pretty bold statement. If you know Elbert, it sounds bold for most. It's not for Elbert, but stands about six four, kind of a very strong presence, but had the courage to tell him about the power of forgiveness. He left Elbert, walked into the lobby, first spoke to his wife and then to his ex-wife and said, you have got to forgive me. You have got to forgive me. Told his wife and his, and his current mother-in-law, he said, y'all have got to be in agreement with me because we have got to get past this right now. Forgiveness has got to come right now. Eight days later, Blake was being moved to rehab. And outside of the fact that he has some strange, unusual things that happen from time to time in his cognitive ability, you would never know that he was even in an accident after having just been told he will be a vegetable for the rest of his life. You see, I still believe that God makes that kind of difference. I still believe that he is still in the business of, of taking someone from where they are and being able by his power, by his willingness, our faith, this is where we're stumbling, by his willingness, he still has the desire to put on display the supernatural reality of God in our lives. I still believe it. But trying to get somebody to believe that about something like that for themselves, I find that to be a very different challenge. Every one of us in here would gladly testify that, yes, once I was a sinner, now I'm a saint. I was lost and now I'm saved. And we would testify of at least one dynamic change that's occurred in our life. I was bound for hell, now I'm bound for heaven. I was once empty, now I have the reality of the Holy Spirit. We could testify of one thing that happened, one moment when I was eight years old, when something that dynamic happened. Why do we believe that God is still not in this relationship with us, 
to so dynamically change our lives so that we don't have to continue to work through the problems that we're trying to work through, but actually have the ability before God, by faith, to let him transform the moment completely. He still does it. Every one of these stories tells of that moment. One of the things that has really been a blessing to me is I feel like sometimes as a Baptist pastor, and I'm not very Baptist and you know that, but I feel like I have kind of betrayed Baptist teaching. You go back and you read this, I guarantee you I haven't betrayed anything because this was the teaching. Until about 1950, this was the teaching. It wasn't in this building, but it was in this spot, where as a result of one revival, there were over a hundred baptized one time. Missionaries coming out of that revival that went around in, in ministry had great effect in the building of a kingdom of God. And we approach God with such a casual approach that it's like it's something we go through with no expectation that he's going to have any power to change my story. Our testimony begins very much like the man who encountered Jesus when he came down off the Mount of Transfiguration. And he tells Jesus his story. My son is in such turmoil that, and, and so torn that even at times he will throw himself into the fire. And he's so torn inside and so beat up because of this demonic presence. And what does the father say? If you could do something. And Jesus said, wait a minute. This isn't about whether I can do something. This is about whether you'll believe. And the father's response was, help thou my unbelief. See, that needs to be the cry of the church. Help thou my unbelief. Can God still change? Does God still change? Every one of these testimonies is a testimony that here was somebody who frustrated, lost, worried, fatigued, whatever it happened to be, and they found the secret, and life was drastically changed. That secret is not really much of a secret. But getting people to accept What each one of these people had to discover, it's a very, very different story. Let's look at the story of John Hyde. Each one of these, you can see up there in the the table of contents, his is describing the prevailing life. Born on November the 9th, 1865, he died uh, very young in 1912. He was an American missionary to an area called Punjab. It is the area in northern India around the area of Kashmir and Pakistan. That's where he was as a missionary. His father was a a Presbyterian minister, and very much his life was about prayer. What was he called? Old Camel Knees, because he spent so much time on his knees, they looked as rough as a camel. So committed to prayer that God would raise up missionaries and send around the world. He departed for India in 1892, to preach in that area, and on the way, he read a letter from a friend. A friend had given him a letter as he was getting ready to depart, and this is what the the author of the book wrote about this moment. Angrily, John Hyde crumpled the letter and threw it down uh, on the deck of of the steamer. He felt sure he was justified in feeling resentful at the content of that letter. Was he not a missionary, already on board ship and leaving the shores of America for India? Was not his father an outstanding clergyman? Was not he a child of the manse, a graduate of a Christian college and of a seminary? Who should tell him that he needed the fullness of the Holy Spirit for effective service abroad? So in this letter, 
a friend of his told him, much to his dismay, that if you're going to be effective in ministry, it will be because you have accepted the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Did this friend think that he had not received the baptism of the Spirit? Or that he would think of going to India without this equipment? And John Hyde was angry. I can tell you that for most people who have had a religious background, when you begin to talk to them about the receiving of the Holy Spirit, this is the answer that you will get. This will be the heart that you will get. Well, do you not know that I'm, I'm already a Christian? I've already been baptized. Do you not know how many years I've been teaching Sunday school? Do you not know how faithful I have been to be involved? I sing in the choir. I do all these kind of things. I dare you hint that there's something else that I need. Twenty stories within this book all testifying, yes, there's something dynamically different that I need. The author wrote that by and by, and by better judgment, he reached down and he got that letter. He picked it up off the deck of that steamer, recognizing that maybe, possibly, there was something else that he needed. So under some moment of willingness, of a moment of yielding, and this is the moment that it seems so hard to get people to come to, this moment of yielding, believing that maybe there's something missing. Why isn't there a dynamic around my life that begins to tell the story of a supernatural God? Why isn't there? Turn with me to a familiar passage in Psalm 23. Go to Psalm 23 with me. Our pastor that was here uh, before me, Dale Cain, and there's, a, there's boxes of these books back in my office. If you happen to want one of them, they come apart the first time you touch them. But he wrote a book called The Story Behind the Psalm. Spent a great deal of time in England and in Europe, in libraries, doing research. He was on the International Mission Board and spent a lot of time in Europe. And part of what he accomplished when he was there was he studied the Psalms and he wrote the history behind them. The history behind Psalm 23 took place when David, so tired of running from Saul, under the threat that Saul was going to kill him, David and, and his men ran and went actually and joined themselves to the Philistines. Now we know who the Philistines are because that's where Goliath had come from. So here's David, without the consultation of God, going and joining himself with the Philistines just by time because of the threat of Saul. So the Philistines gave him a city to live in, and the, city's, the name of the city was Ziklag. David even came to the point where he went to the military leaders of the Philistines and said, we will join you against Saul. So he had, they had left Ziklag, left their families behind, taken his men and said, we will join you going into battle against our own people. And the king of the Philistines was so grateful and excited, but, the, but his military leader said, wait a minute, I know this guy. I, we saw what he did. We know what he's capable of, referring to Goliath. We get into battle, he'll turn on us, and we won't have a chance. So they sent David back to Ziklag. When they got there, no wives, no children. They were all carried off. They'd all been captured and taken away. So in this moment of great distress, David's men, you can read this, I mean it's in the Old Testament, you can read it. David's men threatened to kill him. And when he was by himself, under this great loss and under this threat of his own men who had now turned on him, 
he wrote Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. And what comes next? My cup runs over. My illustration of an overflowing cup is well grounded in David's prayer. Why did his cup run over? What's he talking about? Look at what he says. Because you prepared a table for me. You anointed my head with oil. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because of your presence, my cup runs over. What's wrong with us? It's because we keep trying to produce the Christian life out of an empty cup. Cleaned by the blood of Jesus, yes. But we keep trying to produce from within that cup that which we have no possibility of creating. Why can't we forgive? Because forgiveness, again, is not something we do. If we offer that kind of forgiveness once again, what I'm going to say to Shorty is I forgive you as long as you don't do it again. I forgive you, and if you've learned what you're supposed to learn and you don't do it again, but if you don't, if you do it again, then there's this forgiveness, I take it back, all bets are off. How do we drastically change that picture? We recognize that forgiveness is not something we do. Forgiveness that I could offer Shorty that would mean something would be because the forgiveness of God that it took to pour into me to deal with my sin is now my, in my cup, is now running over. And guess what he's touched by? The forgiveness of God. That kindness said, I forgive you for your past. And it's such a thorough forgiveness that I, it also includes everything you're going to do today and everything that you're going to do in your future, guess what? It's already forgiven. See, that's a different forgiveness. It's a, it's a forgiveness running over. Why? Because I am forgiven. That is an identity. That identity produces something. It produces the forgiveness of God. I am loved. What difference does it make? Because that love that I am now overflows, my cup runs over, and life is being drastically affected. So what's the outcome for David? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our cup runs over. If we don't understand what it means to be filled, we're going to keep trying to be religious. We're going to keep trying to learn. We're going to keep trying with great effort, with great resolve, with great determination, that we can somehow please God by all the things that we do, all the knowledge that I gain. And he's simply saying, I want you to recognize one thing. The cup is empty. Let me fill it. What would the chance be that fear could remain in the cup? Bitterness could remain in the cup. Anger could remain in the cup. If the power of God, the reality of God is released into it, not a chance. Again, I have this clear cup on my desk because I use this as an illustration all the time. But that cup is full of water and it's nice and clean and cool and ready to drink. And I drop a dirt clot in it. And it's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Well, I give you a pair of tweezers and you're hunched over that cup trying to pick that junk out. I guarantee the water would evaporate before you'd even begin 
to get a start on getting the dirt out. How do you get the dirt out? You recognize that there's a fire hose coming across and sitting right over the cup. It's got a valve up here. I guarantee you open the valve and it won't take long for you to be convinced that whatever was in the cup didn't, didn't stand a chance against the pouring in of the reality of God. That's life changing. And suddenly I realize I'm not battling this by myself. I am not. This is the reality of God in this moment. And lives are transformed. That's what we watched in the New Testament. That's what we saw when lives were so drastically changed. We watched, they finally took their eyes off the garbage that was in the cup that they had been trying to focus on, on the, the pettiness, the, the ridiculousness of what was in the cup, hunched over it, trying to deal with it day after day, never, because our eyes are fixed on that kind of stuff, we never look up and see the valve and recognize that the provision of God to clean the cup has already come. It's not rocket science, it's faith. It's a realization that God has a plan and a means by which he's going to do things that we don't ever even begin to approach. It was reported that because of that letter that he picked up off the deck of that steamer, and the question that it raised in his mind, the question that it should raise in all of our minds, am I missing something? Is my life a reflection of a supernatural God? Do my relationships reflect the reality of a supernatural God? When I speak, In obedience to God, does it set people free? When I love, when I smile, when I shake someone's hand in obedience to God, is the Spirit of God released out of me to the degree that they can recognize that they just got touched by the hand of God? You see, we don't even live in that expectation. That's not even what we even begin to say, well, I don't, I hear you, Randy, but I don't know any Christians that live that way. Yeah, that's the the dynamic of the story. Because of the letter, it was reported that that he committed himself to prayer for the rest of that voyage and praying that he might indeed be filled with the Spirit and listen to this and to know by actual experience what Jesus means when he says you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. He wanted to know not just the concept of that verse. He wanted to know that he already understood, he had been trained by in that verse, he understood the verse, could probably describe the words in Greek that are in that verse. But he had a prayer that he wanted to be filled with the Spirit and know by actual experience what did God mean when he said, you shall receive power. Is that relevant to us, to receive power? It better be, or the whole thing is a hoax. If we still have the ability to receive that same Holy Spirit by which that power came, and I suppose that we do, he's still talking to us. But how many of us would be able to say by actual experience, we could stand and testify by witness, by actual transaction that we are a part of, that we saw that great demonstration of power that was received when the Holy Spirit came upon us. Exactly how the Lord answered that prayer, what he did in John Hyde's life is never recorded. He never wrote about it. The only thing that was ever mentioned about that experience from the whole story of John Hyde was he expected the entirety of his life to be the evidence of that change that night. It wouldn't be one event. It would be the entirety of his life would be the testimony that what he prayed and asked God for 
that he would know by actual experience the reality of what God meant when, he, when that was spoken by Jesus. That his life would be the testimony that he had actually received something and life had changed for him that night. He didn't want it to be a flash. He wanted it to be the story of the entirety of his life. The first 12 years of his ministry were called the hidden years because there was no result. I wonder if he had diminished hope. I wonder if he went there with this great fervor of what was going to happen, of the great difference he was going to be able to make, of the great excitement as he landed and began the work. But he was partially deaf, so learning the language was extremely difficult. So over the course of 12 years, uh, there was little evidence of the ministry that he was there to be a part of. So much of those years then were dedicated to learning the language. Every effort was complicated, again, by his being partially deaf and by the tropical diseases that he would pick up and have to fight off time after time. But he was unshaken in his devotion to the people in the small villages, and he was very much their shepherd. I like that, because what should be one of the most simple evidences that the Holy Spirit has come upon me? There should come out of us a very, very natural kindness. And I would even say especially to those who cannot do for themselves. I would say that ought to be probably one of the most natural outcomes of the reality of the Holy Spirit in any of us. And I say it scripturally because the great uniqueness of what happened in Genesis chapter 1 was that when God created man in his image and he breathed into him this breath of life, this pneuma, then suddenly this, this man and woman, now having been formed, when Adam was laying on the ground, perfectly formed, everything of humanity there necessary, and in him was all the potential, in him was all the possibility, in him was all the, the promises that God had made, but none of them were able to be moved and realized until there was the pneuma, the breath of life. You see, within us there's all that possibility. The prayers that people have prayed that include us as the answer. All of that's in us. None of it possible until the receiving of the pneuma. But when they received it and they came to life, the most amazing thing about that story was that God didn't give them any eyes to see themselves. They had no ability to see themselves. I think that's amazing. It was only when sin was introduced and it says their eyes were open and they realized they were naked and they tried to clothe themselves. The first reality of self was when sin entered the picture. But what's our testimony? This isn't tricky. What's our testimony? If you're sitting here as a believer today, what's our testimony? That the blood of Jesus has dealt with my sin. That sin that would cause me to be self-centered has now been dealt with. So what should be the evidence? My sin now dealt with says I get to be reconciled back to that which was once was. When people were other-centered... The very first evidence of the fact that the Spirit has indwelt me, the blood of Jesus has cleansed me, the Spirit has filled me, is that there should be a natural reality of my concern for others greater than for myself. And I love the fact that in all those years, when, when all that he wanted to happen wasn't happening, he served the people of those villages, going village by village and simply serving those people. The great outcome of that difficult time was that he discovered the true power prayer, that in all of those silent years, they were not silent between he and God. The barrenness of those years caused him and a group of fellow ministers to, in real deep travail, 
in prayer and in great extremes of faith. They formed this group in 1904 called the, the Punjab Prayer Union. And those becoming members were required to sign these five simple principles. I'm not suggesting that we do something like this, uh, but I love the sentiment behind, if you're going to do this, then you've got to take on a commitment. You've got to have a resolve about you to live before the Lord in such a way that it recognizes that I can't and he can, and, that, and it will be reflected. Number one, are you praying for quickening in your own life, in the life of your fellow workers, and in, in the life of the church? Number two, are you longing for great power of the Holy Spirit in your own life and work, and are you convinced that you cannot go on without this power? Number three, will you pray that you may not be ashamed of Jesus? Number four, do you believe that prayer uh, is the great means for securing the spiritual awakening? And five, will you set apart one half hour each day as soon as afternoon as possible to pray for this awakening? And are you willing to pray until the awakening comes? You see, it wasn't casual. They were very, very determined that what God had laid on their heart would still come. I can't tell you how much this speaks to me. Because if we don't know some of these things, commit to some of these things and have this kind of resolve in our heart, the things that we hoped for that seemed right here and now they seem to be going away, we won't know how to stop it. And our hope just gets less and less and less. I'm very glad that God has resolved some things in me. I, honestly, I'll tell you very simply, I couldn't do this if some things hadn't been resolved in me. I'm very, very wired to perform. I'm very wired to get results. If you ever worked in me, around me or know me, I'm, that's me. When work is time to work, I won't result. I'm very glad that God has done in me what he's done in me because if he hadn't, I would be very disappointed in myself and how I pastor this church. But to realize on a Sunday morning that the crowd that was here eight and a half years ago is larger than the crowd that's here on Sunday mornings now. That's going in the wrong direction for a pastor. That's not going well for a pastor who's measured by those things, how most pastors are measured. I couldn't do this. I honestly couldn't do this. If God hadn't given me the reality of something so much bigger that keeps my eyes focused out front, it gets diminished at times. But God brings the assurance that he's the one who's doing the work and not me. I love what Jesus told the disciples. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. I kind of live under that reality that I, I have a responsibility to tell the truth as God anoints it. If somebody accepts it and loves it and it changes their life, praise the Lord. It's God's reputation on the line, not mine. And that may sound strange, but it's a great relief. It's very difficult to measure that full impact and importance of his service that came as a result of that spirit-filled prayer life. But his commitment to prayer was matched by his simplicity and sincerity in ministry. At a conference where he was scheduled to speak... He didn't appear even on the platform until most of the music was already over. And then he sat silently in, this, in an Indian position uh, for some time before he ever arose to speak. And this is what he said when he finally spoke. Brothers, I did not sleep any last night. Boy, I can relate to that. And I have not eaten anything today. And I can't relate to that. I have been having a controversy with God. I feel that he has warned me to come here and testify to you concerning some things that he has done for me, and I have been arguing with him that I should not do it. Only this evening, a little while ago, I got peace concerning this matter, 
and have agreed to obey him. And now I have come to tell you just some things that he has done for me. As he unburdened his heart in confession of what God had done for him and in him, he said, let us have a season of prayer. One who was present at the service stated later, I remember how the little company prostrated themselves on the mats on their faces in the oriental manner, and then how for a long time, how long I do not know, man after man rose to his feet to pray, how there was such a confession of sin as most of us had never heard before, and such crying for mercy and help. I guess somewhere deep inside me I long for that day. Simply by the reality and the spontaneity of the Holy Spirit that the only way to explain what just happened in front of us was that God moved on someone's heart. Another reading. To another audience expecting a challenging message on the Holy Spirit, Hyde could only say, I thank God he has given me no message for you today. Thereupon the chairman added, the Holy Spirit is the leader of this meeting. The people began to speak as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and there was liberty but, but not license. Conviction of sin came over the people like a tidal wave. Many were in great mental agony and intense physical strain as they felt the near presence of God settle on the congregation. Men and women forgot each other as the divine searchlight was flashed on their lives. Some began to confess sins that blazed in their hearts, and others, as they arose to speak, trembled as hidden sins were brought to light. Then it was that the sunshine came and flooded the place, and joy was depicted on every countenance. The fruit of the Spirit was evident. It was joy. The fullness of the Holy Spirit in John Hyde's life made him a prayer warrior. In the scripture that he used was, was Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7. I have set watchmen upon, upon thy walls, O Jerusalem, which shall never hold their peace day or night. Yea, they might make mention of the Lord, keep not silence, and give him no rest till he establishes, until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Because John Hyde always saw himself as a watchman on the wall. One who would persist before God until God's greatness became evident. Until the power of God settled over the place, and there would be no second until the Holy Spirit did what the Holy Spirit could do. A watchman on the wall who would never let God rest until God fulfilled all that was promised. He was a true watchman and a tireless warrior and a great evidence of the Savior's love to everybody that was around him. Now read this last piece. On his way home in 1911, the missionary, in great weakness and painfulness, stopped in the British Isles to visit fellow workers who had been in India. There he learned that the American evangelist, Dr. J. Wilbur Chapman, and the song leader, Charles M. Alexander, were holding services in a place that seemed spiritually hard, even impossible. Hyde went to Shrewsbury to take up the burden of prayer of this Dr. Chapman wrote. At one of our missions in England, the audience was extremely small. Results seemed impossible, but I received a note saying that an American missionary was coming to the town and was going to pray God's blessing upon our work. He was known as Praying Hyde. Almost instantly, the tide turned. The hall was packed, and my first invitation meant 50 men for Jesus Christ. As we were leaving, I said, Mr. Hyde, I want you to pray for me. He came to my room, turned the key in the door, dropped on his knees, waited five minutes without a single syllable coming from his lips. I could hear my own heart thumping and beating. I felt the hot tears running down my face. I knew I was with God. Then with upturned face, down which, which the tears were streaming, he said, Oh, God. 
Then for five minutes at least, he was still again. And then when he knew he was walking with God, his arms went around my shoulder, and there came up from the depth of his heart such petitions for men as I had never heard before. I arose from my knees to know what real prayer was. Such is a portion of the story of John Hyde, who became praying Hyde, the man who was anointed by the Holy Spirit to pray. And it says, out of his work in India, there were over a million saved. We can't even dream of numbers like that. Our lives, when we look back across the course of our lives, we, ha- we ask ourselves, I wonder how many people have actually been touched that dynamically by the Holy Spirit who lives in me. Immediately after leaving, he stayed with some friends in Wales where he fell ill. And he went home to America and he was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor. He died after an operation in February 1912 at the age of 46. His last words were, shout the victory of Jesus Christ. And millions of lives were changed. We need to dream bigger dreams. We need to hope bigger things. I've used this illustration several times, but when we were little, standing in front of a mirror, we could imagine ourselves to be anything. We could be astronauts, or we could be presidents, or we could be engineers, or we could be whatever we, whatever we could imagine. We could stand in front of a mirror and imagine ourselves to be. So we were standing there tiny with, in front of big mirrors, dreaming big things. What happens over time? What happens as we get older? The mirrors get smaller and the dreams become less. Why? What happened? Life, fear, circumstances. The last time David was here from, uh, from Kenya, his message, we have to dare to dream again. We have to dare to wonder what's God about to do. And then we just have one responsibility after that. That's what Parker spoke to Sunday morning. What's my part in what God's about to do? How big a dream can you dream about yourself? Heard this today. This was interesting to me. If you started right now listing all the things you loved, how far down the list would you get before you put yourself? It's an interesting question. You want to know one of the reasons why we have such a hard time letting our light so shine before men? It's because we don't think much of ourselves. Where should we be on the list? I don't know, probably by what Jesus said, probably third. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. Love your neighbor, how? As yourself. Lord, thank you that we can come together and just study this for a few minutes and let you speak to us. Lord, I thank you that you deal with me the way that you do, that you restore my soul. I walk down paths where I shouldn't walk. My mind goes to places where it shouldn't go. I get tired, but Lord, you restore my soul. And I thank you, Lord, that you are very faithful, that you keep the reality of you before me always, helping me recognize the truth that that which has been spoken in prophecy is greater than the circumstance where I currently walk. Thank you that you restore my soul. I thank you, Lord, that you restore it to the degree that my cup runs over. Because I truly want that which has been prophesied. That the way that this church will be blessed by my presence here will be because my cup runs over. That the love that they feel will be love that comes from you that was poured into me. Pouring out that they are touched by the love of God. Forgiven by your forgiveness. Feel kindness because of the kindness that you have shown me. Receiving truth because you have poured in truth 
to the degree that it overflows. Thank you, Lord, so much. Just love you and thank you that you restore us the way that you do. Pray, Lord, that we would walk, be challenged by these stories, each one true, each one speaking of a life change within these men and women, when their life was so drastically and radically changed because they realized that they needed something that they did not have. And it wasn't just so they could go through the motions of, of needing it, but they were willing, upon the receipt of the Holy Spirit, they were willing to let the Holy Spirit become evident. It wasn't just an action taken, it was life changing. And I thank you, Lord, for the witness and for the encouragement that this gives me. And I too, Lord, I pray, it's just as it was evident within John Hyde, I don't want my life in the filling of the Holy Spirit to be evident because I speak in tongues or I don't speak in tongues. I don't want it to be by one thing that's spectacular. I want it to be the, the evidence of an entire life. I want my life to be the evidence of your filling. I want my life to be the evidence of you. That what I value is, is what you value. What I love is what you love. What I care about is what you care about. I want my life to be the evidence of you. I thank you, Lord, that you have taught me, that you have led me, and that you have anointed each word. I pray, Lord, as it's released into stories and into lives, it will make the difference it was intended to make, even tonight, in the lives of people sitting here, that their lives would be drastically and radically changed because of your truth touching their hearts. So thank you, Lord, for what you've done tonight for how you blessed us. We just uh, speak goodness over each one here. In Jesus' name, amen.